This is Blake Mutchler. This is Haikov Wong Hao Pepelutive Ruski the Fourth. This is Joanna, who doesn't have a cough. And Duncan, in perfect health. I'm Yanni, without lots of extra names. And this is producer Dave Freed here, and most of us are sick today, so you'll have to pardon the occasional stiffle. Yeah, my normal booming radio voice is uh, wrinkled down to a scorched radio gravel. I said that I think the tea's bringing it back a little bit. Oh, excellent. From where it was earlier. Yeah. Glub, glub. Yeah, you poured on your head. You've <laughs> worked your way in radio presence all the way up from D. Snyder to Alice Cooper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I, that's Billy Idol. High notes are not happening. <laughs> Neither are cultural references. Welcome to iPodcast Magic Missile, where we play games and talk geek. Broadcasting every week from the New River Valley in the beautiful mountains of Southwest Virginia, we bring you audio from some of the most exciting games, new and old. No actual wizard spells here, just actual play from great games. This is iPodcast Magic Missile. Man, Hollow Notes is going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the same time as Nirvana. That disgusts me. Huh. Hollow Notes shouldn't be in the Rock and Roll. Wait, Nirvana's going into the Hall of Fame at the same time as Kiss? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Sounds like a diverse set they got there. Nirvana got in its first year of being eligible. Well, if I recall correctly. Whereas Hall & Oates are merely the most financially successful rock duo of ever. Yeah. And that's what Kiss gets for everybody surviving. <laughs> like I always say in show business, if you want to get over, somebody's going to have to die. They say Is Leonard right? Skinner in? The Stones are still all still alive. Are you sure about that? For, for do, you those dead, do you have to be dead to be inducted? No, no, no. no. <clears throat> it just helps. <laughs> Look, Nirvana, lead singer dead 20 years ago, gets in first year of eligibility. That's Nirvana. They invented... Penises. Grunge. Okay. Well, Grungy penises. Yes, Nirvana <laughs> and certainly not the Ramones at all. <laughs> the Ramones, like, played rock music. <laughs> The, well, you know what? It works that way in wrestling, too. If you die, your chances of going into the Hall of Fame right the frick now go up very <laughs> drastically. Yeah, they, do they, well, sometimes they need, like, the family's permission and stuff, as in the, uh... Owen. Randy Savage. Well, doesn't it depend on how you die, too? Like, if it's in a spectacular, awesome way, that make you more likely to get in? Yeah, if you murder suicide your family with wrestling moves, less likely. You may have to cut that part out. <laughs> I'd be too soon. <laughs> it's not too soon. That was a while ago. How long ago was Chris Benoit? Mr. Knows This answer to this question 2007 or 8 5 years is enough time not 9-11 damn <laughs> too soon <laughs> although I did I did uh, I did show Karen the pleasures of Cards Against Humanity for the first time um, this last weekend and forgot to um, take the Virginia Tech Massacre card out and she drew it mm. She was not pleased. Her sister was on campus near the building when the thing went down. Did, she was kind of scared. Have I done a tirade against Cards Against Humanity on a podcast yet? Probably not. You, not you on a podcast. Well, buckle your safety belts, kids. Fuck a bunch of Cards Against Humanity. I time. am not kidding. I realize that they want to elicit this kind of response, and to them that's funny. And, you know, I guess there's nothing really I can do about that. But this is a game that explicitly is available only for free if you, you know, like, want to print the cards yourself or pay for it online. I get five or ten calls a week 
for people asking if they can buy Cards Against Humanity in my store, and they cannot because you can't buy it in any game store. Like I thought you were going to take issue with the content. (laughs) Oh, of course I take issue with the content. But like all businessmen, I'm infinitely more forgiving of flagrant crimes against humanity that I can make money off of. (laughs) He watches a lot of wrestling. I I still think we should just print out some crappy-ass copies of it and sell those. You see, that would be a crime. And I have no doubt that they would prosecute us to the fullest extent of the law because this seems like a team of guys whose basic modus operandi is whatever is, you know... The biggest dick move is what they want to do. You should package one Sharpie with a pack of index cards. <laughs> Just have packs of index cards and tape a Sharpie to it. Yeah. And then when people ask you for it, just be like, what? boom. It's actually, it's, it's published under <clears throat> Creative Commons. So as long as we are only asking for a reasonable amount of recompense for time and effort spent and materials, um, and we're not like charging a huge markup, that, that it, is actually it's, it's, mm, it depends which Creative Commons license it's published it's under. Want to just publish Cards Against Cards Against Humanity? Well, it's, it's, like, the, it's, like, it's like the company that did Crabs Just Humidity, which Don't is just another me. set of cards that's just mm-hmm. like Cards Against Humanity, but because they didn't call it Cards Against Humanity and didn't use any of the same cards, it's perfectly legal. And you can totally... You might be able to sell Crabs Just Humidity, actually. Wow. I am, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I was trying to actually tell this story earlier. It's funny that you should bring up adjusting humidity. So oh, here we go. in the course of uh, you know trying to get my voice back over the like on Monday, we decided we were going to do this recording today, or Tuesday we decided we were going to do this recording today, and uh, I was like, uh oh, later Tuesday night I lost my voice. So I've been like dedicating myself to healing my voice over the. Over the past week, and everything I've done has only made it worse. Channeling key, senzu beans, nothing. In typical Blake fashion. Anyway, uh, I heat my room in the winter with a dehumidifier. I dehumidify it in the summer with that same machine. But in the winter, there's no moisture in the air anyway, but the dehumidifier does nicely warm the room in a strangely energy-efficient manner. Like, it keeps the room hotter for less energy than my space heater uses. It's a space heater. I know, right? It's heating all the space. It draws it straight from Venus. Anyway, so, but I, I was thinking to myself, maybe needed. keeping the air so dry, running a dehumidifier in the winter is, you know, not good for you. Is not good for my throat, right? So last night, I turned the dehumidifier off and turned on the humidifier, a machine I also own. Okay, so I wake up in the middle of the night. Room's twenty degrees colder, and it's ten percent less humid. Because- Science has failed. Because the room is 20% colder. The, so, the, the heat capacity of air goes down as you as you cool it. So I hope you don't like making sense. I turn the dehumidifier back on, put it on the opposite side of the room. I'm going to fight it out. Is the humidifier still on? Huh? Is the humidifier still on? Yes. Okay. It doesn't so, sound energy efficient anymore. No. <laughs> I'm running a humidifier on one side of the room, a dehumidifier on the other side of the room. I got the temperature back up to where it was, and it's 20% more humid. I have a humid, whatever the, what's the name? that, I think. What's the, no. the, whatever the name of the machine that measures the humidity in the air? Odometer. Yeah. That, like you, is a lie. <laughs> Tachyon generator. Geiger counter. That sounds Dirt closer. Flux capacitor. Yeah, let's go with that. So, that's enough nonsense. Let's get down to the nonsense Never. that we... Let's get down to the nonsense that we came here to discuss. Delve Knight. And if anybody's irked by the clicky-clacking of my needles, I can stop. No worries. 
You're, you're off screen enough that it probably won't matter. I'm using directional yeah. today. Again with the screen. Poor High Cove. <laughs> so kind of it's incongruous. Like a glove, because it looks like you're making yeah. tiny fingers or something. You are like a piece of bacon sizzling yeah. in the skillet that is on this finger. That's right. The sweater man. Yeah. Salad <laughs> fingers. Yeah, salad fingers. What's the matter, salad fingers? Don't you like my mouth words? <laughs> so, Delph Knight. Yeah, so. Um... Once upon a time, Wizards of the Coast had a good idea. 2008. Uh, they called it Delve Night. They basically no, they didn't. Yes, they did. I know. <laughs> Stop subverting me for a couple of minutes while I do the intro. Um, they sent out to stores uh, these sort of adventure packets designed to be played over the course of a series of one-shots. Uh, and marketed online and everything where the idea was people could show up at their local game store and play in a D&D 4th edition. This was part of trying to get 4th edition over. Um, play in a D&D 4th edition game without having to bring anything. They could just get dropped in. Like They had pre-built characters that were sent with the packet. Maps. It was really easy to DM. Uh, and it was supposed to be like a, a little tryout for uh, D&D 4th edition for people. Everything but miniatures, really. Yeah. In fact, early seasons might have included miniatures. No, the first, like, four or five sessions came with which is, minis. Which is the entire time they called it Delve Night. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they had this thing called Delve Night. It was pretty popular at Fun and Games, but I guess it wasn't popular enough everywhere else, or maybe it was too popular because, you know, they were shipping free minis with the project. Mm -hmm. uh, but they canceled it right when we wished they hadn't. And our thinking was, well, heck, this was working out really well for us. Let's keep doing this ourselves. Blackjack hookers, all. So then we uh, so we, we started doing a weekly D&D &D night at Fun and Games that was always a one-shot. There were pre-built characters on hand. Uh, each week was a new like one-shot adventure designed usually earlier that day because I'm a terrible procrastinator by myself. And then DM'd by Highcove. Who generally saw it walking into the store yeah. 15 minutes before the session started. Yeah, I would hand... 30 minutes. I would hand him. Depends a when I got off of work. <laughs> I would hand him a printed out piece of paper uh, with you know the stat blocks of the monsters, perhaps a list of their behavioral patterns if uh, it was a day that he was destined to be angry at me. Um, that kind of thing. It was funny too because I, I want to say like six or eight months after we started doing this, they brought back Delve Night. Only they called it D and D Encounters, which still runs to this day. Though about a year ago they switched to using D and D Next playtest material. Instead of being fourth edition, that was a real interesting intellectual exercise for us because we both sat there and said, "This is a good idea, and it needs to happen." But neither of us has the time to essentially run another campaign, even if you don't need an internal continuity or consistency. You still needed to sit and design a session every week. So we figured, okay, here's how we're going to split it up. Blake is going to design the session because he can do that. But he has to run the store while the session is being run. So I, Heiko, the handsome one, will walk into the store and run the session that Blake has designed. It helped that this was during a time at Funny Games when our, le our volume of daily business was a lot lower than it is these days. And the guy running the store could actually sit at a computer and do, like, you know, spreadsheet work all day, only having to get up to serve customers a couple of times. Um, nowadays, that shit wouldn't fly. Like, when you're working fun and games, it is very much a full-time job now. Uh, but, so I would usually come in the day 
Wednesday? Was it Wednesday or Tuesday? Tuesday. It was Tuesday. Encounters mm-hmm. ended up being a Wednesday. Was it always Tuesday, or did we start on Wednesday and then move to make yeah. space for Encounters? I think it started on Tuesday. Yep. Uh, Jamie was running Delve Night on Tuesday. I would I would design the session during the day, and then Hikov would show up after getting off work, and I would hand it to him, and he would say, this looks like a terrible idea, let's see if I can fix it. There was a lot of doing stuff freeform, which was great. Things like... Oh, Blake didn't write how tall the apple carts were, so I'll decide how tall the apple carts were. Blake didn't decide this creature's personality, so they're wildly effeminate. Oh, also a woman. Okay, I guess that works out. Blake didn't decide this creature, he just said, and then the wolves attack. So I guess I'm making up wolves. Stuff like that. It started off very unsophisticated. I remember right at the beginning, when we were trying to do it, we, um... The very first Delve Night session was, uh... We had a lot of people that had been playing in the previously designed... Uh, you know, the, the Wizards of the Coast official Delve Knights. A lot of people. We were concerned about our ability to uh, support all that capacity of the table. So the first session, I simply planned on being a head-to-head party versus party, player versus player, like, arena battle. And that went over like a lead balloon wrapped in cement. We'd had <clears throat> great success with this in third edition. Right. I think during college, every... Thursday or Wednesday or one of those days it ends in Y. We would get together and we would all punch each other until somebody fell down. Usually F. And it was great. But as we looked at it, part of it was that we tended to run things around level 5, 10, 15, where you took more than two hits. Uh, fourth edition doesn't have that problem. Yeah. Because player damage output is scaled way higher than monster damage output. Okay. So, guys went down in two hits. Came from the video game emulating element of 4th edition whereas in 3rd edition based systems it's a simulation. So monsters and people are basically the same kind of animal and are meant to have, you know like a sword or an arm that's as big as a sword do the same amount of damage, right? Whereas in 4th edition you have player damage and monster damage. Monster damage is designed to give players the illusion of being endangered. Player damage is designed to give players the illusion of beating something worth defeating. Players don't have enough HP to support damage against each other. Duncan, you were there for that, right? I was. I think your wife was in it, too. We may have scarred her for 4th edition. No, she played, in, she played in a campaign after that. It was pretty monstrous, though. We mostly got torn to shreds by uh, better characters. <laughs> you had that beautiful uh, sword mage that used a shield offensively. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. A dwarf spiked shield mage. Because it's a light blade. <laughs> it works. Kind of, arguably. He had a great many for it, as this tends to be the case with Duncan. He's he's still around somewhere. (laughs) So then we were like, okay, that didn't work. Let's go back to the basics. Uh, And by the basics, I mean I have a problem. HiGov knows it. I like to draw mazes. Don't ask me to draw a dungeon, because I'll give you a maze. Like a legit maze. Uh... And I guess that day, I was young and hadn't made this mistake yet in the context of Delve Knight. So I sure did draw me a big old maze. I was like, here, party, explore this maze. He was so proud of it, too. Had a metal sheet that I think the a map of the maze was taped to. A full and complete one. And then uh, there was a piece of plastic over top of it. And did we have the magnets by then? Yes. Rare earth magnets, which are itty-bitty. That we were supposed to use to track the player mo- movements in the maze. Also, a minotaur's movement, because it's a freaking maze. But that did mean that every time a player took a step, Blake would have to look at the map, walk over behind the screen to look at the big scary map, 
walk back there, draw the portion of the map they could now see, walk back to make sure that was correct, nod, then the player could take a second step. It was a little inefficient. <laughs> Sounds like you needed a service for that. Yeah. That would actually be really cool, because the session awesome. was pretty cool. Despite the, that limitation. Yeah, even, even with that, but but that was just a real killer. Like, couldn't keep any momentum going, because well, he does find out where, where we are. <laughs> there were other creatures in the maze besides the Minotaur. The Minotaur was just the incredibly scary, you can't beat it, eight levels higher, we eventually learned our lesson that this is not a deterrent creature. Uh, there were also a bunch of dire rats running around. Right. The problem was they were about as fast as the players, and I think the players had no patience for them. First time they saw a dire rat, the dire rat went, ah, and approached a player and might have swiped at it. The player just kind of looked at it, shrugged, and wandered off. Drew an attack of opportunity, missed, no one cared. And the player took a double move. So the rat went, wait, 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 no. That's the only thing I can do. Went after it. But I think it had to run to catch up with the player. So the player was movement six or something. So the rat had to double run and then just stand next to the guy. At which point the player also ignored it and walked (laughs) off. So the rat had to double run to catch up with that guy. After three or four turns of this, the rat had hit once for about negative three damage. And I figured was just wheezing. (laughs) Because this... You know, just a player, some elf or something, sauntering through the room with this rat Olympic sprinting after it, just like, ah, ah, ow, ah, ah, ah. So we started calling it Asthma Rat. Because uh, it sounded like a sufficiently Egyptian name. Yeah. The, um, when they had to have a second rat be on the map at the same time, we were uh, in some trouble because we'd run out of dire rat minis. Uh, so I dropped in the. I don't know what it's actually called, but I always call that mini claptrap. What's it actually called? It's like little, like a little bear trap. Yeah, a little pair of teeth. Yeah, all right, it's claptrap. Right. So anyway, that that was the the rat represented by claptrap, which we called clap rat. So we had an asthma rat and a clap rat. That is to say, chlamydia rat just kind of happened. There was nothing about that rat that was particularly chlamydia-esque. Chlamydia awesome. Chlamydical. <laughs> yeah, chlamydical. But you know. While we're going with afflictions early in the alphabet for our themes, let's 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 run with it. I don't think we came up with anything that started with a B. There was no bubonic rat, which would have been wildly appropriate. That's why. Oh yeah. Uh, at one point in the maze, uh, James, who was playing a paladin, I am almost certain. Okay. Oh yeah, that's right. They they uh, they ran into the Minotaur, so it was like oh shit. And what James ended up doing was he, he ran down a different direction than the rest of the party to kite the Minotaur away, which was fine because it let him explore twice as much maze. May, James's portion was, of course, explored at a, at a sprint. The rat gave up. Minotaur, on the other hand, did not have that problem. He was as fast as a player. And uh, eventually we, uh, we called that session. They did not find the end of the maze. But we called the session as... Uh, I believe the Minotaur had already taken like two of the three bites it was going to take to kill James out of James and uh, was getting was winding up for the third and then we were like oh well that's an initiative pass session over good Just job everybody walked up to it waited for him to draw an attack of opportunity and then we hit 8.30 or 9 o'clock or 3 a.m. I don't know whenever we ended that session like James you win by omission the rest of the party spent the second half of the session in a gelatinous cube, if I recall correctly. That was a different that maze. Was a different night. Oh, a different maze? Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, you see, wow, okay. Blake, yep. like um, 
In fact, I think Dick your Cheney wife spent a lot of time in that particular Is notable for not yes, learning from mistakes. I, I remember, I feel like at some point somebody even attacked her to shift her, shift her forcibly out of the cube. <laughs> I don't remember. Exactly. <laughs> like, Sorry. Just attack her! So, a number of weeks later, because I, I, I make my mistakes, or I learn from my mistakes fractally, I made a <laughs> maze half as big. <laughs> Uh, but that maze is wide. That maze was worse because it had ten foot wide hallways, which was exactly the width of uh, Hygobe's brand new gelatinous cube mini. Looks suspiciously just like a dice case. Anyway, the thing about gelatinous cubes, of course, is that they are very difficult to detect when still. Until somebody gets into them and they start jiggling, you know, that you, you can't tell that there's anything there. Megan ran headlong into a gelatinous yeah. cube first, and yeah. she was not going to take it lying down. She's going to be floating. Yeah, if you're already standing when you run into it, you're not going to be lying down in any uh, short duration. Yeah, the, the general gist of everyone's turn in that game was, I move forward, I turn left, I work. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. And there were, it turns out there were several gelatinous cubes in that uh, in that maze. I guess I was... We were just kind of you hoping only one would be on camera at a time. Because again, only one mini. Well, we're still learning this. Normally players were good at killing things. How many times did those dice boxes get used as monsters during the uh, Delve Nights? Oh, well, jeez, there was the swamp session. Yeah, I made those cute little, I made cute little paper covers for my dice boxes with faces on them to make them count as thwomps for a Super Mario Brothers themed session. A thwomp is a creature that is just a box, a block of concrete, where when you get close enough to it, it hurls itself at you. It goes. Arr! And then goes back to its home and waits for somebody to pass by again. We decided, that's incredibly boring. We're going to have them change direction sometimes, maybe. So whenever a player got in range, they would charge forward, bonk them, trample them, or just bonk them? They ran them all the way over and went to the other side. Ran them all the way over, then start facing random directions. So the hazard areas change somewhat haphazardly. I remember this. They chose a new direction of facing randomly. I failed to reckon upon the possibility of the thwomp turning around to face the way it had just come. Because something about the timing of the way they ran people over, it was definitely a reaction of some kind, allowed them to do it repeatedly. So we actually had the problem that as written, if the, the monster had a one in four chance after running someone over of turning them around and running over them again, like mm. at instant speed, no opportunity to respond. <laughs> Except now there's a bonus to attack because they're prone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also didn't reckon upon a thwomp running into a thwomp. Yeah, yeah. Like I if know. one turned and faced another, that's technically creatures. They would both charge forward, just go, err, 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 and we would wait until the server crashed. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the theming of Delve Knight was one of the fun things about it. Like, it, like at the beginning, I had some somewhat rough ideas. You know, we had the player versus player session, and we had a maze... Uh, I'm going to talk. Maze. I'm going to talk about the, uh, the 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 scavenger hunt in Zombie Town, field. but like troll field, what cornfield? Because cornfields are usually mazes, you know. Just go. Okay. <laughs> um, we had Metroid themed sessions because we had all these uh, Dream Blade minis that made really really great space pirates. We had a bunch of reasons for Metroid sessions. One, we had those great Dream Blade minis that looked like space pirates, and we had a bunch of them, like seven or eight. Yeah. So duplication was not a problem. It wasn't fight the one guy and then we're out of good minis. Two, it was something that appealed to the zeitgeist of the target audience. 
everybody had heard of Metroid, even though they might think he's a guy in armor. Uh, three... He shoots an alien, doesn't afraid of much. Yeah. <laughs> three, just other M. Blake, Hart, Samus, Aaron. Like, he wants to have her babies. I do. So, <laughs> these, these three reasons together combine for something like eight, eight Metroid sessions. <laughs> We were going through the binder the other night to give ourselves ideas for what we were going to talk about for it, and yeah, there were Metroid sessions. We were like, oh, Gloves was with us. He said, this is the session where I got locked in with the Omega Pirate. We're like, no. And then we went back farther in time. This is the session where I got locked in with the Omega Pirate. No, still not yet. It's just a second session with the Omega Pirate. This one, yes, this time you got locked in with the Omega Pirate. So we had three with a huge pirate. Remember that month you did around Metroid-themed encounters? Yeah. The first one, the only survivor was Dave. Because he adamantly refused to enter into combat and instead just snuck into the building? Well, the goal was to sneak into the building. <laughs> yes, but it wasn't to set up a teleport waypoint so everyone could join you. That's not how Metroid works. You walk with feet. Generally in Metroid, there's only one player, though. But well, you're still walking. It sounds to me like Dave fulfilled the uh, <laughs> intention of the, of the adventure. Sure, but, um, I was just following orders. <laughs> <laughs> you were just following Carnage. Oh, I can't even remember what it's called. When you do the spinny flying thing, screw attack. Screw attack. Yeah. Well, but isn't there, there there's, there's the space jump is the jumping yeah. one. The screw attack okay. is the one that makes you invincible. But isn't there a term for it when you like, like uh, keep doing it? Space yeah, jump. Space, space jump. jump. Okay. Space jump is where you be. You can keep on jumping in midair. Best game ever. The best game ever would be that game, but with a map twice as long in each direction. That's true. Mm. Which game are you talking about? Um, Twilight Princess. <laughs> the um, my favorite thing about the Metroid sessions, just while we're on this topic, was uh, at a certain point uh, I was working on this Excel spreadsheet. Fourth edition monster design is really really simple, especially when you're coming from a background of third edition monster design. Fourth edition monsters are just a black box that attacks come out of. We said this for, you know, story time a couple of times now. Um, and everything about the monster derives from its level and its monster role. There are six monster roles um, and 30 levels. I guess you can go up to 40, ostensibly. You know. Everything else about the monster can be engineered from that. So I actually wrote a, a, a spreadsheet in Excel... It took some fancy Excel skills, but the bottom line was you'd copy the monster in. Like, just copy the, the generic template monster. Change the upper right-hand cell to read the monster's role and level. And it automatically generated all the rest of their stats. All you had to do was fill in the flavor text and, like, you know, if a, if a power did something in particular, write what it did. But it allowed me to generate monsters really fast. Like, this was the One Piece campaign ended up running concurrent with this, and numerous times I would make monsters during the One Piece campaign while describing the monster to the players. You may remember this from the last story time. Oh, did I actually talk about this yes. already? Oh, my bad. Well, point is, I was able to generate monsters really quickly, and that kind of opened up the design space for Delve Knight. Getting back to the subject of Metroids, I've always liked this Metroid story uh, for the supposition that the title monster, the Metroid is the most terrifying life form in the galaxy. Like, you know, pick the, the, the alien series Xenomorphs, and now it can fly with perfect uh, maneuverability in 360 degrees in space. Oh, and it's immune to all weapons. Except freeze rays. 
which nobody has. <laughs> uh, so I made the monster pretty goddamn terrifying. There were a number of times where it was like, oh, there's a Metroid paddock. A bunch of force fields are holding them in. You can push a button to open the force fields and let the Metroids out. I, in- I intended the players to make this mistake once. Which is why there were several weeks in a row with Metroid sessions, so they could learn from those mistakes. They made it three times. <laughs> Consecutively. Was it the same person each time? No. Was it a person who was uh, there for a previous person having made that mistake? Yep. <laughs> what did they think was going to happen? Metroids also attack the space Andy? pirates. Because Metroids have no friends, only foods. But they're Metroids. Yeah, yeah they are. Metroids were terrifying. They did something like they entered your square and did five damage. Also, like ongoing twenty necrotic and slowed and audited save ends, something like that. They definitely picked you up and dragged you around. I know that much. And it was it was pretty difficult to struggle out. And they were nigh immune to non cold damage. I think I, they had resist thirty non cold. I don't think a Metroid ever caused a TPK. I think the Metroids always caused a most PK. And then the pirates <laughs> mapped up the survivors. Yeah, but the Metroids were busy attacking the pirates, too. Yeah. I know that you had some fun rolling attack rolls against yourself. The players had a lot of fun with that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really envious I missed these Metroid sessions. I love Metroid. Mm. It's one of my favorite series. And mm. it sounds really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we still have the minis. <laughs> <laughs> I could make a Metroid campaign one of these days in 4th edition. Man, the one Metroid session that didn't involve the Metroids was the one the players rollicked. We had it set up so that after six rounds, I think, a backup shuttle of Space Pirates was going to crash in through the dock, or as Blake hand wrote on the sheet, or wherever's funniest, (laughs) and deploy any miniatures that I had already taken off the field. So we start with seven space pirates, the players pick them off over a couple of rounds, and then whatever miniatures I collect, that ha- that's who happens to be in the shuttle. Also the Metroid boss, which I guess was like a sword wing or some trash. Yeah, it was the sword wing. It was the space pirate command. Well, we had written down, it, it arrives in round six. The players killed every monster in round five. And then they could shut everything down before the shuttle got there. So I'm like, well, I guess you guys win an hour in. Remember to tip your waiter. <laughs> they were just so good, despite themselves. Yeah, that was a that was a running uh, theme of uh, Delve Night. In the beginning, I was very religious about designing the XP budget as recommended in the Dungeon Master's Guide, which made for some really short, brutal encounters that were not very fun for the DM. No. This was back when we were stupid. We designed them like a fair, reasonable encounter. And eventually recognized that players are supposed to go through five of those in a day, not one. They're not supposed to unload all of their daily powers in round one, then all of their encounter powers in rounds two and three. Yanni, he's gone. Because <laughs> I know Yanni did that in a campaign. The, um, the other thing about it was that the... There was a there was an extra level of power escalation to Delve Knight beyond merely knowing that there was no tomorrow for your character. People got the impression that there was no tomorrow for their D&D soul, if you will. 
and would bring experimental builds, the kind of things like, I wouldn't run this in a campaign because I don't want to ruin my circle of friends. <laughs> I don't want to be judged for bringing this character to a D&D campaign. But I'm okay with using it on a provisional basis, you know, sort of experimentally for this one session. Which is the weirdest thing, because I imagine that most people's um, circle of friends has never hit anyone with a steel chair. And that's not something I can claim. Yeah. It's like, I gotta try the mace out on someone. Might as well be a bouncer. <laughs> uh, at a certain point, it became like the purpose of Delve Knight for many of the players. I know, Dave, you in particular had a number of experimental <laughs> builds that you uh, had a lot of fun with uh, reskinning the character, because this was after the One Piece campaign started, so we were no longer bound by the paragraph of italicized text. We had, uh, what was his name? Louis? Louis! Louis the mechanic. mechanic. Louis was great. Threw mugs of coffee at people and got, uh, what was her name? Martha. Martha, with a, right. With a welding torch. <laughs> she dropped her cigarette. Yeah, well, when she died. Yeah. Right, because she died in a burst. All right, okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what, were you an artificer? Yeah, yep. I think that's what it was. He was an int-based Joyzy mechanic. I also brought some builds to Delve Knight that I'm not proud of. Oh. Eventually we realized that Delve Knight was full of thought experiments and irredeemable people. Um, and so I, with some you know, space in that Venn diagram. Right. So I escalated to match. I think Delve Knight had an overall record somewhere around one-third TPKs. But after we figured out we were what we were doing, from then on it was about one half TPKs. So we had extraordinary parody. The neat like, thing, MLB needs to listen to us. <laughs> the the neat thing about it was, of course, that you know, like I said, players were like, "Well, you know, there's no tomorrow for us." But then when I realized, <laughs> you know well, what? Like I guarantee it, there's no tomorrow <laughs> for them. I don't have to feel bad about TPKing the party. I can actually like place a challenge in front of these players and be like, "Guess what, kids? You're gonna earn your dinner tonight because." This is not a fourth edition encounter. This is not the kind of thing that you are guaranteed to survive. You are not going to come out of this with your cape and your, you know, hair blowing in the wind. You're going to come out of this with half a player. See, this, this makes me so sad because that is the thing that I loved about Lair Assault and that, like, I would love to have been a player for. Oh, we got to tell stories about Lair Assault sometime. Oh, yes, we will. Our version of Lair Assault is probably very different from yours. <laughs> Super, like, self-aggrandizing. Oh, wildly. Yeah, Because yeah. I'm great. Mm-hmm. And Blake was there. I'm pretty good, too. <laughs> Blake was the Virgil to my uh, my Ted DiBiase. <laughs> <laughs> I, the sad thing is it is kind of true, because you had that busted regeneration power on round one. Monster was like, kabam! Have, like, 25 ongoing. And you were like, I'll take 25 regeneration instead, but thanks for playing. <laughs> Team. Whatever. It was immunity <laughs> to session. <laughs> Man, while we're on the subject of ridiculous regeneration, your wife. Jeez, oh cripes. What? The early Delve Knight sessions, she played a shaman, I think. She mm-hmm. had an adorable little, like, crab turtle friend. Yeah. I think it was a hermit crab. And we just used our crab turtle mini. Yeah, we used that mini. That, that poor mini gets so much freaking, like, mileage. No. <laughs> It's too bad that we have something useful. I don't get why we're complaining. (laughs) (laughs) 
But it's because she, we never use it as what it's supposed to be. She popped a... It's a rune spiral demon. F that. She popped a burst early in every Delve Knight. That gave everybody regen 2 when bloodied. I remember that. <laughs> that was back when we didn't understand the rules for regen. Specifically, you don't have regen if you're unconscious. <laughs> That's so much less cinematic, though. Is it? Because we saw it as, aha, when somebody is knocked two negatives, all they have to do is wait for their turn. At the beginning of their turn, they'll heal two, which means they go to zero, then heal two. Because fourth edition healing. The yeah. only way to knock a player out is to take them from whatever value they're at to negative bloodied before their next turn rolls around and there's nothing you can do to stop that because it's a <laughs> un- uneven counter burst. We were like, jeez, oh, frick, Wendy, you're busted. So to the extent that the monsters succeeded at all during the period of Wendy's first round regeneration bubble, uh, there was a lot of spiking the ball. Like, kill player, pick player up and cut player in half. Feed player in tender morsels to the rest of the monster party. <laughs> Take laxatives, hurry to the bathroom. <laughs> Dump Knight was weird. <laughs> you say that like, oh geez, that wasn't in the binder. What? Uh, bones to bread. Oh, you're right. The fairy tale is missing. That was a good one. That's a material. So you don't get it. What was another like fun session? We talk about the uh, the arbitrary. You know what else wasn't in that binder? What? The incredibly tall swamp with the bullywugs and the frogs. Yeah. No, that was in there. Okay, because we there. had those minis. Oh yeah, I should tell a story though. This one is less easy to get without a visual aid of the uh, the amazing blocks. So you brought them to me. Hygo got a bunch of these one-inch wood blocks, like one-inch cubes. I don't know. where did, You must have, like, tripped over them. Where did you find those? Like a wholesaler. Right. And we were like, now we can make terrain out of blocks. And I was like, interesting. As a man who owns many posters, because I own a game store, I also own a lot of uh, sticky tack. It's that little blue putty you use to stick posters to walls and theoretically it comes off without staining the wall. If you've been to a college, you know what it is. Uh, and I discovered that you could use it to stick these wooden blocks together. So we had a glass grid that I drew a one-inch... Well, we had, we had a glass like pane that I drew a one-inch grid on, and that was what many of the Delve Knights took place on. Because the table was a little bit questionable in terms of its sturdiness and flatness. The glass was, you know, completely rigid. So that was that was handy for putting minis on and having them not fall over or whatever. Uh, and we could use the sticky tack with the blocks to create all kinds of exciting three-dimensional terrain on these glass panes, and one of which was a... Yes, he could. We introduced the rule of uh, if the mini falls, it, it stays where it lies. People kept knocking minis over. Yeah, with their baggy sleeves and, like... What we actually music. ruled was... If a player is knocked over, it stays where it lies. If a monster is knocked over, put that noise back. You can't just sneeze and change the encounter. Yeah, we didn't want players weaponizing the phenomenon against us. It's a law, too. A player's at all times allowed to screw themselves over. If you see, ooh, I'm about to get flanked, and just flick your player off that part of the map, all right. They're going to take 40 feet of falling damage. They're going to fall on lava, but they ain't flanked. (laughs) We had a lava session. We should probably at some point have you make fun of me for my naming of monsters. Jeez, oh cripes. Lava-voom! 
Lava Voom. That sounds like something James named. Huge Magma Elemental. <laughs> Parallelophant. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing, because you'd, you'd think that Blake, obviously, would know the least about hair care products. But he knows what Vavoom is. I, I, I don't know what Vavoom is. Well, <laughs> Blake knows the least about commercials. <laughs> I know the most about commercials. He's the Parallelophant. Oh, Man, the Barrel elephant, the most redeemable of the four monsters in that encounter. It could only move orthogonally. <laughs> the Arachnopolis. Arachnopolis. I can't remember how it was. Exactly. Yeah. Dear reader. It became Jeff the Spider eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Arachna. Uh, Jeff. His name is Jeff. <laughs> and you know what? He came back as Jeff. And later, Del and I was like, boom, and everybody went, oh no, it's Jeff! <laughs> The other colossal spider left an impression. Oh, sorry, huge spider left an impression. <laughs> Ooh, I should tell a story about the the spider tower. That one was really fun. I'm actually really proud of this one. Um, so yes, he is. Oh, shut up! It was awesome, <laughs> and you know it. The um, I had a session where oh. we, a lot of times we would draw the map on on one of those erasable Chessex like vinyl mats. Uh, it was a tower, so. Uh, all over the mat, I drew the circular room for each level of the tower. Down at the bottom of the of the board, closest to the players, I just had a big rectangle, a big rectangular map with a bunch of blocks sitting on it. None of the blocks were more than an inch tall. So people were looking at me like, I don't understand what the rectangular map is about. And I was like, ah, that's the outside of the tower. Instead of north, south, east, north, south, Southeast. Instead West. of north. Instead of the cardinal directions. <laughs> instead of the cardinal directions. Uh, yeah, blue jay directions. Up on, or towards the DM on the map was vertically up, and away from the DM was vertically down. You would lie your minis down on their side as they ran around, and one end of the rectangle connected to the other end of the rectangle like a Super Mario Brothers 2 level. It was a, the outer surface of a cylinder. And because there were spiders, they could crawl around on the wall like it was north, north, south, east, and west. Whereas the players were stuck by, you know, the regular forces of gravity. And then, you know, when you would go to a door, you would pass into the interior space where the, uh, where you would be back in the regular D&D paradigm of directions. For the most part, the players adapted to it fairly well. Uh, Going to the... Side view of things with uh, up, down, clockwise, counterclockwise isn't always easy, but they they got it. Wait a minute, you used that mechanic too, and my players were much dumber. Did you do it before or after me? <clears throat> okay, was that during the period of us like constantly feeling like we must be stealing each other's ideas, even though we would never talk to each other about those ideas until they both came up in the, the, the same, tower campaign and Delve Night at the same time? Same freaking sessions. Go to Delve Night, run a session. Something would happen. Go Saturday, run a session, something would happen. Come Sunday, run a session, the same freaking thing would happen. But I had planned my session a week before, and none of us had talked to Matt. It was wacky. And that was the great minds think alike period, I think. I think it was we both subscribed to the same Tumblr's period. (laughs) (laughs) I never got any information from Tumblr's. No, the, um, the children's glasses. Nope, don't know what that is either. Like, these? 
Cricket chips. Yeah, they're actually whiskey glasses. <laughs> Look, man, I don't so know if you use them for kids if you want. I have a bottle is a whiskey glass. <laughs> I usually but drink my liquor directly from the bottle. Kid sized whiskey glasses. <laughs> That's true. I remember right, your the whole family. <laughs> your ten thousand day party. You had a bottle of something vodka. Vodka. I think uh, you drew lines on it that said, "In order, start here." Haven't drunk enough. Uh, just just right. right. Too much. Just right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? Point, point of fact, the 10,000 day party was it is also a Delve Night story. Because it happened on a Tuesday. That was a really good dad. Uh, Blake planned this out. Yeah. Um, at a certain 10,000 po- days ago. At a certain point, well, more we were sitting around the store shooting the shit like we sometimes do. And uh, we got to thinking about uh, counting our age in days. Because we're stupid. And I counted my age in days and discovered that I was 9,900 and some odd days old. And I was like, oh man, I should have a party at my 10,000th day party. For those of you at home, or in the subway, or hiding out in the (coughs) freezer, doing the math right now, it's about 27 in four months. So, if you're 28, you missed it. Ha ha! Yeah, it is a bit of a shame. Anyway, the... Uh, or is it 28 and four months? No, it's 27. Okay, cool. Right. Uh, you only add a digit to your age in days four times in your life. Because you're not going to make it to 100,000. That would be 270. Well, unless Google has something to say about it. Yeah, yeah sure. Man, oh man, how weird would that be? I will throw one hell of a bash for my 100,000th <laughs> day if it comes to that. If your legs still work. Yeah. I don't need my legs. <laughs> if I'm a brain in a jar, I'm going to throw the best party a brain in a jar has ever thrown. Anyway. Might be the last party you ever throw, but... Yes. <laughs> At the end of the party, they'll throw me off the balcony. I mean, like, you've gone bad. What's the point in 100,001? <laughs> that's all the days I plan for. You know how many presidents I've seen? Twelve. And that's too many. So anyway, um... I decided to, because I am, if you couldn't tell from listening to our podcast, pretty self-centered, uh, made a session in honor of myself. And uh, it featured the monsters that the players fought being all of um, my favorite D&D characters from over my long D&D career. Uh, there was Grack the Spindler, my very first character, half-orc barbarian, you know, very iconic. Uh, Felonius the Minotaur of the Felonius and Misdemenius duo. Ton of fun to run. Uh, we even got Arnold the Robot into the action, and it's very handy that Duncan is here for this, because this was uh, I was pretty proud of the uh, yes. the mechanic here. It's a dual culmination, because I had been playing a changeling for like five or six sessions of uh, the Delve Knight, and, and nobody ever noticed. I would just pick a new mini from Heiko's box of minis, every session, and play the same exact changeling rogue, and nobody ever called me on it, even when I was climbing around in the trees as a dwarf rogue, like, making acrobatics checks. Nobody ever said, Duncan, why are you making acrobatics checks? You're a dwarf. That's dumb. But it all came to a head when I turned out to be Arnold the Wainwright! Yeah, I designed a, uh... Hold up, what? Arnold the Wainwright? Isn't that a guy? I think Wainwright is the guy who knocks down castles. Well, presumably they'd build something. You know, Furious George engines. knocked down castles, and he was in that session, too. Mm. How many nice? castles were in that session? No. None. Um, <laughs> Furious yeah, George just was just knocked them down. 
Man, I remember that was that was a good one too. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But Furious George and his like unwillingness to tolerate a castle of stand. Was he the one who was being pursued by a dragon? No, that was Grack. It was Grack's uh, when his HP reaches zero move. This monster was my first character, and I always tell this famous story about this time we were chased by a green dragon through a lot of uh, through a lot of territory. We actually had a Delve Knight dedicated to that session uh, in particular, where they the players explored the map that had been the forest in which Grack encountered that green dragon because I still had the records from that campaign. Anyway, um, when Grack went to zero, instead of dying, he fled off the screen, quote-unquote, as he was chased by a green dragon which trampled anything in his path. The end boss of that one was the plot hole elemental. Which was the campaign boss, such as it was, for the bottomless bag campaign. Bottomless Bag Campaign we're going to talk about eventually, but it was really, really meta. In fact, the villains were a set of meta monsters. One was named the Plot Hole Elemental. Yeah. That guy was that guy was kicking. He had a reaction power where he hit a guy, and if he hit, I guess it was an interrupt. Yeah. It would cause one d six plus one damage to the attack roll. He actually attacked your attack roll result to make it missing. He had a power that could punch somebody so hard they arrived at the beginning of their next turn in the other Delve Knight taking place at an adjacent table. Yeah, when we had so many people, we had to split into two tables, and thankfully that night was one of those nights. <laughs> the first time that happened, the guy just packed up, went to the other table, and everyone was like, "What? What's going on? Why are you here?" They're like, "You'll see." And five, <laughs> minutes, five minutes later, they went, "Oh!" And someone packed up, went to the other one. <laughs> he had one power where hit a guy so hard the DM and the player trade places. <laughs> The player became the DM, and the plot hole elemental took over character, running that player's character. The thing was, I think it missed at the one table, and at the other table it hit F, who managed to wind their way out of doing it. Yup. Because I was running that table. It was a bit of a shame. <laughs> it was. But the, uh, yeah, the plot hole elemental was a lot of fun. But I never finished explaining what happened with, uh, with, with Arnold. Well, anyway, I made a pre-built character. Cordelius Possible, which was one of uh, Arnold's go-to identities. He had a lot of different identities, but... This one was so he could introduce himself as cordially as possible. Yeah. So, I made up the Cordelius Possible pre-gen, and Duncan started the session playing Cordelius Possible. At a certain point, I think I just said in the character sheet, like, whenever you feel is most wildly appropriate, throw your character sheet aside with great flair and panache, and uh, pull out the monster entry for Arnold the Nimble Right and turn on the party and like backstab the hell out of somebody. In fact, I think it was one of the monster's powers because he got like mondo damage for the person who wasn't aware that their party member was about to turn on them. Arnold was a lurker. Yes. Yes, he was. Unlike Felonius, who was a brute. Furious George, who was a brute. Grack the Spindler, who was a brute. Uh, Riker Short Pump, who was a healer, but that's not a type for monster, so he was a brute. And Gary Smasher Stubblefeld, who had Smasher in his name. Actually, I think Gary was a soldier, because somebody had to do it. Actually, remember, he locked people down with the with the Earth's Embrace, like, scissor clamp. You know what? The plot hole elemental was a controller. <laughs> I don't think he did damage. No, not, not to players. He had no Death win games. condition. Well, he did no damage to characters. Yeah. <laughs> Them's different. Yeah. I want to say that he did have a power that was like punch a player in the face or something. But anyway. I actually really like the idea that the plot hole elemental had no win condition, much like the bottomless bag campaign. Yeah. 
what is the first of three lessons we learned from Delve Knight that we can tell the second and third lesson and the second and third story times about it? Some players aren't savable. Yeah, that's true. The um, But some players are. That's also true. You know, we're not going to sit here and, like, badmouth people, but we definitely... Yes, we are. <laughs> I am. Okay, well, My God. <laughs> the, um, some of the players who played in Delve Knight kind of were funneled into Delve Knight because of its non-continuous nature. The idea of it's open for everyone, we wanted it to be kind of a tryout thing that people could come in to try D&D Cold. Well, it ended up being pretty bad at that job. Fortunately, Wizards of the Coast revived the Delve Knight program and changed its name to D&D Encounters, and we put that on Wednesday, and that was our beginner-level thing. And Delve Knight became sort of the intermediate-level thing. For a while, I remember I actually advertised it as such. Wednesday was Encounters for Beginners. Tuesday was Delve Knight for Intermediates. And Thursday was Layer Assault for Experts. Didn't work that way even a little. Masochists, but... Yeah. uh, Hell, yeah. Well, the problem was that the intermediates, or perhaps even the experts, uh, couldn't get enough D&D and just played in every session that they were allowed in. But what we would discovered was this phenomenon of, you know, the problem that people always have with D&D is finding a DM. Everybody wants to play, nobody wants to run. So when we're like, hey, free service D&D session, you know, that ostensibly is open to anyone, like, we're not going to turn people away. Well, for... You know, being too generally experienced at D and D, or oh, having played, life. having played it in too many you're times, too high level in real life. Yeah, uh, it's never been a problem. <laughs> so a lot of people ended up using it as their weekly session. Pathfinder Society is having that problem right now, where we have like twenty-four goddamn people showing up for a Pathfinder Society, and twenty of them, heck, twenty-two of them, are there twice a week for every session. We've had to ask repeatedly for people to be like, "Look, man, go form your own campaigns. We don't have room for you anymore." So anyway. People you could save, people you couldn't. Right. Well, the point is that because of this anybody-can-play style, we sort of funneled in all the players that campaigns just couldn't hold. Yeah, we ended up with a lot of people who didn't really fit with campaigns going at the time. And a lot of them were because they were terrible people. A lot of them were not. They were just getting their footing. I mean, we eventually had to make it through F, 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 gloves, F, and F. And things were rough for a while. I know that we ever had a session where there was like every single person in the session was someone neither of us would allow to be in a campaign we were actually running. Happened once or twice. Yeah, it did. And I feel like they kind of drove off some of the more redeemable players too. It was a lot of that. Is there a name for when you're that kind of player that has to stand aside from the rest of the party, like cloaked in shadow? Lone wolf. Winterfresh. Yeah. Too cool for school. World you know? of Darkness. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> Duncan brings the pace. <laughs> it's super effective. <laughs> hey, my World of Darkness character was a pop star. <laughs> so yeah, like, but I, you know, they got to have some fun at our expense. I got to have some fun at their expense because I killed them <laughs> weekly. It was really cathartic for him. I got. I was the DM. Who's going to tell me I'm wrong? I got to target the people I didn't like. <laughs> that guy right there. That guy's a problem. I'm the controller. Not anymore. You're not. <laughs> Doesn't help when everybody is people you don't like, though. Not everybody. Glove made it out of almost every session completely intact, except that one time I told last story time about where I was the one DMing and I had a 
40-foot adamantium monk drop what it was doing to unperson gloves. <laughs> so that he couldn't react and activate face and call every turn. I think he mostly came up smelling like roses, which is especially, you know, striking for a character with his mechanic. It, uh... It helped that the players did a lot to kill themselves, too. Oh, yeah. They would all gather around the table and say, Alright, what's everybody playing? Striker, 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 striker. Leader. Defender. Who's the healer? <laughs> Just you. Oh. Okay. Then how do you heal? Oh, you're a hybrid. We had more than once where we had somebody run a leader that did not actually have any, like, healing powers beyond the ones they could not avoid. And I want to say at least once we had somebody who was, like, running an alt build of, I want to say, a warlord, where they found a way to, like, turn their healing into attack bonuses so they had no healing at all. <laughs> Does that sound familiar to you? I remember a shaman like that. Oh, well, maybe it was a shaman. I remember the exact build. Managed to get off three attacks and zero heals every turn. It certainly did the job <laughs> it came to this earth to do. However, like elevator operator, it's not a job we need anymore. We're pretty happy with Delve Knight, though. It was certainly... It, it let me get a lot of designs that I wanted to run out of my system without having to have a campaign for them. Ah, and it strongly ramped up my ability to run a session on the fly with no prep. Oh, yeah, that's true. Just had me a session, I went, all right, give me five minutes. All right, I'm running this. Which is good, because I don't prep for sessions now. I think it was... It went a long way towards building our chemistry as a, like... DMing duo too, in, in the same way that vinegar and baking soda have chemistry. I started uh, designing monsters specifically with Heiko's predilections as a DM in mind. Uh, like frequently, especially towards the end, I, I know that monsters I would just like put in the description of a power. You know what it does? <laughs> Something like this. Mm. You know, does this much damage? This much damage if Mike is playing? <laughs> that kind of thing. Do we have to have that out? No, uh, there wasn't a mic. Okay. God, do we have a mic ever? Mm-hmm. Three. Who were they? Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> so eventually Delve Knight turned into Pathfinder because that's what you were actually selling. Let's and talk about that in a we'll later. Talk about that in a later one. Yeah, yeah. we actually. I was. I, I'm think a bunch of stories are coming up that we can talk about next time. Um, like uh, the transition to or from Fourth Edition to Pathfinder. The um, the Harpy Navy kept coming back. The ongoing story based parts of. Delve Knight. Yeah, the, the the actual like premise of it with the the magical arena, which came up every once in a while, and some of Blake's freaking goofiest sessions, like the Fourth of July. I think he had everybody fight Uncle Sam, Balder the Eagle, Lady Liberty, Lady Liberty, and Dame Columbia, and Jack Swagger. The all-American American American from professional wrestling. Now a member of the real Americans. Buy their DVD when and if it comes out. In like 20 years. I'm not... I, I don't think so. I'm going to book out right now. They are not getting a documentary. No freak! <laughs> it would just be Cesaro spinning guys for 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we have a superhero session? We had the one where the players fought Captain Planet. Yeah. They were defending an oil rig yeah. from the Planeteers. <laughs> the players as the bad guys versus conventional good guys with a theme I went back to the well on a number of times. We had the session where they fought the uh, friendship... It helps the players are conventional bad guys. <laughs> they fought the friendship as magic, My Little Ponies, which was a really good session, by the way. I think I designed that really well. 
I mean, it ended up going completely to pot, but in an awesome way. We'll discuss it later. While we're recording this, I wanted to uh, run an idea past you. I think I ran it past you already, but... Uh, While we're recording, curious idea. I forgot your um, response. I want to, at the end of each of our story times from now on, try and seed the audience with a hashtag. Of course, neither of us use Twitter, but we're the kind of guys that just think of hashtags. Like, you know, we'll sit around and... In our text messages, or normal conversations, like that Jimmy Fallon skit. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're, if you're uh, permitting, I would like to uh, start off with uh, hashtag pizza newspaper swerve. This is a, something you can find on TV Tropes. I think the page name is Shocking Swerve. It's from wrestling, the idea that you sign up for one thing and get something completely different. Something that's completely random and off the wall for the sake of being random and off the wall. The analogy is when you order a pizza, you expect a pizza. If you get a newspaper... It doesn't matter how great a newspaper it is. You're like, this is a really great newspaper, but I was expecting a pizza. Are you happy? No. Did you get what you wanted? No. Will you use this service again? Absolutely not. But was it what you expected? No. I was surprised. (laughs) Uh, You, dear contestant, may notice this because the title of this podcast is uh, Naked Pictures of Supermodels Guaranteed. (laughs) And instead, you listen to this trash for an hour. So good on you. We're grateful. We are. We need the attention to live. We're energy vampires. <laughs> That's true. Again, Dick Cheney. Although we draw our, our strength from love, not hate. Well, hang on now. <laughs> okay, except for you. <laughs> I draw my power from acerbic sardonicism. You know, it never occurred to me before that the love-hate session was an analogy for you and my relationship. In that you're a black man and I'm a white woman? Ouija, <laughs> <laughs> that's racist <laughs> That'll be the hashtag next week Ouija, that's racist <laughs> How do you spell Ouija though? Carefully uh, U-I-G-I Is it okay to have an apostrophe in a uh, hashtag? No The punctuation breaks it Well then it would be W-E-E-G-I I thought is it was W-E-E-G-E-E An abbreviation Yeah, I was in Luigi. that huh? Yeah, Luigi Yeah Okay It's an abbreviation to a character's longer that's the best kind of abbreviation. You know, this seems like my style. <laughs> one syllable shorter, and that's what's important. I think hashtags have the same requirements as XML tags. Pretty much. And that, you know, you can't start with a number, there are a bunch of characters that are banned, and you have to have a closing tag at the end. That's why you have to have two hashtags in every tweet. Oh, is that one? Is that one? Really? No. You don't have to have a closing hashtag on Facebook. It's a damn lie. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm a liar. There's a stuff like he says. I don't use hashtags. I don't know nothing. We good? Yeah, I think we're great. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks for Spaceballs. And enjoy some Danger Patrol tonight. I am going to take my wife out for her birthday. Nice. Also, before you stop recording, I want to thank Yanni for this excellent mint tea, oh, it's which has enabled me and Dave to function. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> you didn't drink any of it. That's how I know. No. <laughs> Happy to oblige. This podcast is fully copyrighted by its hosts. Visit us at podcastmagicmissile.com. I Podcast Magic Missile, attacking the darkness since 2012.
This is producer Dave Free, the little horse here. <laughs> bad horse, bad horse, bad horse. <laughs> this is producer Dave Freed here with uh, fuck. This is be at three hours of sleep. <laughs> Best podcast ever. <laughs> we have outtakes here. <laughs>